Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 374. Thank you for tuning in, guys. I hope you're all well. I'm joined today by Nikesh Shukla, and it's, as we discuss, it's a conversation that's been a long time coming, so I was delighted to uh, to make it happen. We mentioned, I recorded this just after I'd released the episode with Moose Rockwonga, which has been a really popular one. If you missed that, go back and give it a listen. Uh, so we mentioned that. We also mentioned, I think we mentioned the chat with us, or one of the stories that Asim Chowdhury told in his chat, and maybe one of the stories that Nihal told. Um, but yeah, loads of really good chats if you want to go back and browse the archive if this is your first time tuning in. But most importantly, Nikesh has got an amazing new book out. We talk a lot about The Good Immigrant, which was the book that kind of blew him up it's amazing it's a collection of essays we get into it don't worry but we also talk about his new book brown baby and the accompanying podcast which isn't like a reading of the 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 book or anything it's investigating the same themes that nikesh looks into in the book but with other parents and with other people so yeah it's all really good and you should look at all of it and follow nikesh on socials because he's wonderful yeah, I was delighted to have this conversation. It's mad our paths hadn't crossed before because we've got so many mutual friends and so many shared interests and everything. So um, you're going to love this conversation. We speak a little bit and we reference hip-hop a few times. If you're a fan of my music, then you will have enjoyed the last three weeks' worth of Behind the Album episodes. Three weeks, three episodes' worth, all last week where we went, I, I did a behind the album on each of the albums I did with Dan Lassac. So they're worth going and having a look at if you fancy it. And you can head to speechdevelopmentrecords.com where you can buy vinyl, CDs, DVDs, merch, all sorts of good merch. The often quick to sell out sunglasses are back in stock. I've not posted about them much because you know every time the sun arrives, I post about this. We've got these sunglasses that have the label slogan we may not be for you and that's fine on them and they always seem to like sell out in a day or two so um in this instance i've decided to chill a little bit and uh just just let them bubble over and then i'll start pushing them and and see if i need to order more but yeah anyway you can get all of that over there you can head over to patreon.com forward slash scrubius pip if you want to support the podcast for just a dollar i think it's gone up to a dollar fifty a month i think they added some tax or something i don't know but yeah it's under two two dollars a month so um it's a good way to support the podcast and show your appreciation for all the content that comes out for free but also if you can't afford to do that then don't you know you this is all here for you for free if you can afford to then you can go and chip in for someone who can't afford to if that makes sense but yeah that's all there that's an option let's get on with the podcast eh this is episode 374 of the distraction pieces podcast with the amazing nikesh shakla And there we go. Right, I'm joined today by Nikesh Shukla. How how are you, sir? I am very good, Pip. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's mind blowing that you've not been on 
before because we've got so many mutual friends. Our paths have never crossed somehow. I need to kind of warn people that this is the most flustered start I'm possibly ever going to have because normally I spend the 10 minutes or so beforehand just having a look at what I want to say, get, getting in the zone. But I spent the 10 minutes before this watching you on our, our mutual friend Moose Rock Wonga's Instagram Live. So I've just <laughs> been there going, this is great, I'm enjoying. And then suddenly going, oh, I'm meant to be hosting now. Right, okay, let's get into it. <laughs> Yeah, Musa, Musa is amazing. One of my favourite people in the whole world. I don't, you know, I, I, I owe a lot of, I don't know, my, my sort of confidence in him. He's so good at pumping people, making people feel good about the stuff that they're doing. He's just an amazing man. I couldn't agree more. I, I was so pleased that there was a good five minutes or so of that Instagram live where the comment section was just blowing up about what an amazing l- l- laugh he has. Because he laughed at one point and people were like, this guy, this is the best laughing podcast and this is the best. Because again, it's exactly that. It it lifts you up. It's such a positive yeah, thing and human there. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm surprised our, our paths haven't crossed. I mean, I feel like you've probably had pretty much all of my friends on the on the podcast. It's been, and like, we've been in the same room a bunch of times. Yeah. I've like, obviously seen you in concert and... Oh, amazing. Um, I wasn't even aware of that. I saw you do do your spoken word tour at a place in Bristol. I live in Bristol, like yeah. five minutes down the road from where I live. Um, yeah. Which was amazing when you were just doing the spoken word. That was one of my favourite tours ever because it was just me, Polar and Kay in the back of a van that was yeah. being driven by the guy who used to do the sound at the metal club when I was growing up. So it was just the most relaxed, <laughs> chilled tour, tour I've ever done. And yeah. That was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I want to just start things off by asking how you are, man, because I think that's a really important question in these times. And the easy answer is always, well, you know, it's a pandemic. But yeah, <laughs> like, like, how are you and your family and everyone? We are fine. I had quite a fun day today with my youngest kid. Great. She was on rare form. I was trying to work. I was like, you know, we're recording this on a Monday and so like... I'm just sort of thinking about the week and I've got a bunch of deadlines. I've got this book coming out this week. I've got homeschool to think about. And then, so I was trying to do stuff and she was just in the zone doing jigsaws. And every now and then she would just look up and throw random questions at me. So, so today she asked me, why do people have faces? And I, and it stumped me. I was like, it's a good question. Why do people have, uh, hold on, let me just think about this. Then she asked me if wolves were real. And I said, yes, they're real. And she said, prove it. And I thought, oh God, already she is, um, (laughs) she is not, not, does not trust me as, as a source of information. Then she asked me why broccoli was green. Right. And not any other color. I was like, these are brilliant questions yeah. to be firing at someone who's really stressed out. So actually it kind of eased the day. How about you? How are you, man? Yeah, I'm good. But I, 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 I love that. I love the inquisitive mind there and almost the, the childlike highlighting of questioning reality. Cause the only way that you can prove wolves are real is to Google a picture of a wolf, but you can Google a picture of a troll or of a dragon. So, <laughs> so, so how's this, how's this proof? At this moment, your only form of proof is completely invalid. So that's some wonderful, some wonderful questioning. Yeah. My, both my kids are, are very specifically scared of wolves. I don't, I don't know wow. why wolves and not other things, but 
I always find it really bizarre. Like, why wolves? Like, you could be scared yeah. of... Tri- I was When I was growing up, I was really scared of Rumpelstiltskin for some reason. I just had right. this yeah. fear that he was going to steal my sister away. Uh, oh, wow. I was also scared of the werewolves and carry on screaming. But, like, actual yeah. wolf- wolves, which they, they've seen in those wolves. wolves. Yeah. That's a bizarre one to just stumble upon and have that yeah. so enrooted. <laughs> There must yeah. be a reason. There must be a film or a story or something that's that's led them down that path. Yeah, but also like I love. I just love the the sass of prove it, prove they're real. Yeah, you c- yeah. Or or, you, or your relationship with your your kids and the relationship between parents and kids is going to come up a lot in this as we talk about your new book and your new podcast. Because um, mm. instantly, a few of the, the things you, you've mentioned there have have made me think of the um, of the Jay Sean episode and the a lot of the revelations of the honesty of children and the the use of them as a, a barometer or as a tool to get to the truth rather than speaking to adults. But we'll come b- back round to all that because, as we've said, in reality, you you should really have been on here at least a year ago, if not more. So it'd be criminal to not talk in some part about the good immigrant because that it just blew up and it was such a beautiful thing. And for people who don't know, the good immigrant was where you put together a collection of essays and stories from people I adore, including previous guests, Moose Rockwonga, Riz Ahmed, Hemesh Patel, Inuit Elums, who was also in the in the comment section of that Instagram live just now um yeah nish kumar and at least one other long overdue guest in 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 selena godden but it was an amazing collection how was it what kind of inspired you to put this together and to to put all of these voices in one place i guess yeah so you know i'm a novelist hold on one second one second one second I've just got some new like podcast equipment, so I'm still, still figuring out levels and stuff. That's all good. <laughs> oh, that's so much better. I can hear you and less of me now. Um, Perfect. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> as I was an, a novelist who, you know, I've always had this thing where, like, if people don't like my writing, that is totally fine. It's art is subjective and all the rest of it. But I, when I was coming up, when I was trying to get my first novel published, and you know, I I know all of those guys because. I used to do spoken word and I was also writing this novel and I was trying to get it picked up. And then you'd kind of get all these sort of weird comments from people. A a literary agent once told me that um, my characters didn't feel authentically Asian enough, which was a bit weird because I'm very authentically Asian. And another guy told me that I'd, they were already publishing an Indian author that year. And I was like, but you can have more than one. Also I'm from Harrow. (laughs) If like, if we're going to be technical about it, and I just found it bizarre that like there was all this stuff, all this sort of gatekeeping that, that was to do with skin color and nothing to do with the actual writing. Cast my writing all you want, you know. But don't tell me I'm not Asian enough. Don't tell me I'm <laughs> not Asian enough. My my voice isn't Asian enough as such. <laughs> yeah, my response to that was like, "Do you want me to put a jihadi eating a mango at an arranged marriage in it? Would that make it more Asian enough?" And they did not reply. Mate, mate, I. I recorded a podcast a few days ago with Asim Chowdhury and he had an amazing story of a casting he went to where they asked him, they weren't sure how to word it, but they asked him to spice it up a little. (laughs) 
<laughs> genuinely. So and he was like, you want me to do the Chabadi G voice, basically. But again, he's like, no, yeah, but yeah, again, I'm not going to de- yeah. derail with someone else's story, but it sounds like a very common problem that they want, they are asking you to fill a box that they've made up in their head, if you know what I mean. We want yeah, an Asian yeah. writer, so we want it to be these things. Yeah, like, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure Satch, Satch the One ha- has had stories about that as well. I just yeah, was yeah. the other day listening to his podcast. He, yeah. like, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but he and I also, we were in part of the same circle, but we never met. And then just one day he just reached out to me on Instagram right at the start of lockdown. And he was like, yeah. I feel like we need to work together, but I don't know what. And um, he got this commission to make uh, like a lockdown play and wow. we we collaborated on writing it. And you know, all that stuff that you were talking about in your podcast about mental yeah. health, we kind of just worked out a way of talking about that and talking about um, grief and talking about like performance as like an edifice for how we kind of put all of our pain into our work. And then we have to then like get it up in front of people and try and perform. But what yeah. happens when you're now, you're now switching from like, doing it in front of rooms full of people where you can feed off their energy to just like doing it on zoom and yeah. and what happened what happens when there's no audience like how real can you get it's a really interesting yeah. piece and like because he's so amazing he just like i wrote this thing not and it was like the first time i'd worked with an actor that closely wow uh because because i do bits of screenwriting and it oh man he was so good in it he was he, so bloody good he's so talented he was a revelation to me that conversation because obviously I've been a fan of him in numerous things as you will have heard but yeah you never know how these conversations are going to go particularly with actors actors are a mixed bunch that that they can be that they can be the oddest of the odd but that was just within five minutes it was like we'd known each other for years and it was just yeah he's a wonderful human I love that I mean, it's a testament to a very charming actor and a very seasoned, much-loved podcast host and poet and actor that well, they were able to get on very quickly. I hope so, I hope so. But yeah, so just all this stuff was sort of happening. And then, you know, my, my novel came out and I just found that instead of being invited to promote the novel or do events and stuff, I was just always being invited to do diversity panels, which is basically where a bunch of people get together on a panel berate whatever industry they're in because of all of the systemic racism or you know what whatever like lack of inclusion and diversity there may be in that industry and then everyone goes home and like someone goes well we did the conversation so we don't have to actually do anything and nothing changes and I was just getting sick of being invited to do those things and I read a couple of books so I read Between the World and Me by ta Coates and Citizen by Claudia Rankin and they both just blew my mind and Reniedo Lodge's book hadn't come out yet and I was like where is like our like the contemporary book about race in the UK and I started to write something and I just thought I don't have enough to say this was like the summer of 2015 and I wanted to do like instead of just whine on Twitter which is kind of like my go-to when it comes <laughs> yeah. to stuff like this yeah um I wanted to do something about it and one day Musa actually Musa Kwanga was on Twitter talking about this idea of the good immigrant where he was talking about Nadi Hussain and Mo Farah and how you know you start off at this default when you're from an immigrant community you start off at this default position of uh you're the bad immigrant um here to steal all the jobs and the NHS waiting yeah. room places and all the women and all the rest of it and if you want to become a good immigrant and transcend in the public eye you have to 
do something like win a televised baking competition or win an Olympic gold medal. And like the bar is set so high. Yeah. And and I just, I replied to that thread of Musa's and I was like, I would totally read a collection of essays about race and immigration called The Good Immigrant. And he was like, well, then put it together then. And then I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. In that way that you do. Yeah. Uh, and then he messaged me later on. He was like, it is a good idea. So I, earlier that year, I'd met these guys at this publisher called Unbound. And Unbound's a really interesting publisher. They use crowdfunding to like pay for the costs of a book before yeah. it comes out. And so like when the book comes out, in the shops it's like it's it's making money it doesn't have a, an advance to recoup and it's kind of got like this early word of mouth from like supporters who feel invested in it yeah. and i thought that's a really interesting way of um putting a book out it can come out quick quicker and also so like to kind of give you a stat about what was happening in publishing five years ago like obviously things are different now but in publishing in 2015 like 180,000 new titles were published in the uk and out of those titles like 80 were by british writers of color and out of those one was by a black british male and like 30 to 40 of them were cookery books and whenever you ask the question like why are there so few books by british writers of color being put out because like you know books are being bought in from america but like what about cultivating the ecology of amazing writers here like our all of our mutual friends like musa and selena and inua and all of these amazing people and the answer was always, well, people don't really read those books. And so you'd go, well, can you show me the market data insight consumer report that tells you that people don't read these books? And obviously the report doesn't exist. Yeah. So I just thought, well, you doing this crowdfunding thing would just prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that people do want to read these books. Yeah. And so we put this crowdfunder up and it, we were crowdfunded in three days. Wow. And then we had to put the book together. And Musa was like the obviously the first person that I asked to be in the book and the first person who delivered an essay for the book and as soon as he delivered the essay i was like you have given me a grenade and you've drizzled maple syrup all over it yeah so people people are going to taste how sweet it is and then it's going to fucking explode it was a, it was as he likes to say a thermonuclear essay yeah because it, it talks about it's called the ungrateful country and it ends with him leaving the uk having just yeah. given up on trying to make make a life for himself in the uk and i said i read it within an hour of him sending sending it to me and i said this is perfect and this is going to close the book i don't know yeah. what else is going to come in yet but this will close the book yeah and that's what i knew i knew this book was going to be special as soon as i read the first line of his essay which was it was always a case of making sure i appeared grateful and i thought that is a fucking great line such yeah. a great line. He 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 touched upon it in the in the Instagram live just now of um, simple but but not basic as mm. as as his his kind of mantra for writing. Not trying to as someone who went to Eton and all this kind of thing. Not trying to blind people with a look at my linguistic gymnastics, but rather going, I need to get this this point across as powerfully as possible and as as directly as possible and uh that comes across loads in 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 the good immigrant and again it's not that it's you've set people the task of writing angry essays (laughs) it's no it's it's not a hate letter to the uh, to the uk it's 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 a it's a truth bomb if it come if any of the essays come across as negative that's because of the situation that you're reading about it's not because of 
the individual. These are true stories and true lived experiences. Yeah, I tried to stay out of everyone's way as much as possible when it came to writing them. I had three notes for them. One, write the essay that you know no one else will ever commission because they're too scared. Yeah. And write it like they should be scared. Two, (laughs) instead of reaching for anger or pain, try and make me laugh. And three you're writing literature that people are still going to be reading in 20 years time. Write it like yeah. people will still be able to read it in 20 years time. And it kind of did as good. Like people, people still talk about, I still get messages about that book from people who are discovering it for the first time now. Yeah. And that's amazing. Like when I was first starting out, like my first novel was like a lovely, silly little coming of age book about, it was kind of like my ode to my, my years as a shit rapper in yeah. my twenties. <laughs> and like it was never going to change the world. It was like a charming, like slice of life thing. I never thought I would do anything that people would still be talking about. And like, so it's, it blows my mind that the good immigrant has had the impact it did, but then it shouldn't blow my mind because if, when you look at the cast list, like it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And again, it's that, it's that beautiful thing of kind of being a highlight to those people who said that we're not publishing this because people don't read that stuff. And the fact is, People don't read a hundred percent of the things that you don't publish. That's it's a self fulfilling yeah, exactly. a prophecy when you're making that statement or argument. It's ridiculous. So this is gonna. This might sound like an odd one, but I think you'll understand and relate. How was it promoting the good immigrant? Because I've always found that promoting my podcast, I'm far more comfortable doing because I'm genuinely excited about the amazing people I've had on. Whereas promoting my own albums and stuff, it always felt Obviously, I'm proud of the art, but you feel, am I going on about this too much? Am I going on about me too much? Mm. Have I done too many posts? Whereas if I've got this amazing episode with this amazing human on, I'll shout about it for hours saying, it's fucking amazing. It's one of the best podcasts ever. I've never said that one of my albums is one of the best rap albums ever. Never in my life. Whereas there's been podcast episodes that I will stand by are as good as any podcast episode that has ever been made. And it's because of the other people. So... When I was, I was thinking about The Good Immigrant, I thought maybe you'll relate to that because you get to be proud of it, but also get to step back slightly and say, oh, no, no, it's these people that I'm I'm shouting about, you know? Mm. So the very, very contrasting emotions pr- promoting it. The first thing is like the reaction to it was amazing. Like everyone wanted to talk yeah. about it. And we kind of felt like the last gang in town. And yeah. because there were 21 different writers every event that we did that I was part of, it was like a different lineup of the adventures, you know, and I got, we all felt like a family. We all really got to know each other. And these were like a lot, a bunch of them were people I already knew, but there were a bunch of people who were meeting for the first time who are now like some of my closest friends. And that was amazing. And meeting so many people and like doing events where the signing queue would be an hour longer than the actual event was. And people being like, this book has changed my life. Like young, young people of color kind of going, this book just makes me feel less alone and all this kind of stuff. And that stuff really, really was amazing. Now the, the other thing was like, suddenly this like dumb fiction writer who writes comedy, like sitcoms and comedy fiction, I'm being treated like a public intellectual and I'm being invited to (laughs) go and debate like Nigel Farage on the news. And I'm being asked to like, do events where I have to like have fights with like debate club style fights with people about really sensitive issues. And I'm just not, 
I don't have the emotional makeup for that. I'm a writer. Like yeah. I'm best here in this little hovel in this little corner of the room, putting it all down. Like I, I'm not, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not good on TV. I'm not good on panels. And suddenly I was just being asked to do a lot. And the success of the book, a lot of the pressure of the success of the book relied on having the editor of the book as well as like two or three contributors. Yeah. And so, and also they all get paid say, as well. You, so you couldn't really, you couldn't really Wu-Tang Clan it and kind of go, well, no. if it's a rap battle, can, then, then we're sending Ghostface. But if it's, if it's yeah. an interview on TV, then we're sending RZA. Um, yeah. You, you yeah. want the good immigrant. We'll select the right good immigrant for, for the situation. Yeah. I couldn't even MF doom it and send an imposter. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And like, I I really remember I did an event in Berlin and a guy came up to me and said, I'm I'm writing a piece about public intellectuals. I'd really like your quote on it. And I said, I'm really sorry. I'm not a public intellectual. I'm just a writer. Yeah. Um, and you said, is that your quote that you're not a public intellectual? I was like, no, no, I'm not being interviewed right now. I don't want to do the interview. And <laughs> stop quoting me. And so I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> retract, retract off the record. Uh, and like, I just, I basically found I was going around the country, going around, like the world talking about racism every night talking about the trauma of racism as as it affects me and people i know sharing that pain with people and then in the q a one or two people or in the signing queue one or two people would share their pain with me yeah and someone else would be would argue with me that what we were talking about was nonsense and didn't even count as racism and everyone's too woke and everyone's too sensitive and blah 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 and it would just be a real head fuck for me and then because i've got two young children I tried to make sure I got home every night that I could. Like, unless I was like in Newcastle or Durham, like yeah. if I could get the train home, I would get the train home. Cause if I was missing their bedtime, I could be there in the morning and just equalize and normalize. But it did mean that I'd have these sort of crazy events. I'd feel really like distraught by the end of it because like you're holding a lot of people's pain. And then I'd be on the train by myself for two hours yeah. Just like trying to watch dumb, like Jason Statham films, just to stay awake. But also just yeah. me, my phone, following like people arguing with each other about this book and arguing with each other about the issues. And 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 it just it really messed with my head. It was like, it was a horrible few years to promote the book. Like, because no, no one really, like, thank you for asking, because no one really asks you the cost of like speaking up about all this stuff, especially if it's way out yeah. of your comfort zone. Did you watch I May Destroy You? Yeah, yeah. So away. you know the you know the the episode where it's the Halloween episode and she's dressed like with the horns like like Maleficent. Yeah. And there's that bit where she's walking through the center of London and she's got that barrage of social media notifications yeah. all over the screen. I had a panic attack watching that because that's what life was like 2015 to 2017 for me. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if you've ever had it but like when you get like 20 tweets a minute and like four of them are you're amazing and 16 of them are you're the real race or like they're really negative yeah it all just becomes noise and actually you filter out all the stuff about or i i would filter out all of the stuff about like that was really positive and i would just like beat myself up with the really negative stuff and it just wasn't healthy man so i agree it's tough as well because it'd be easy to say that you should just walk away from it. But I also feel in those situations, you feel you have a public responsibility as well to keep an eye on mm. it as such, to make sure 
no one else is getting attacked or nothing bad. Like I've I've had that in the past. Where it's like I want to throw this away and turn turn my phone off and watch a film, but I feel I need to keep an eye on this post now, which means I need to see every horrible thing that is said just to make sure that no one is attacked or nothing goes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like I, I've got a bunch of death threats on Twitter. I got a death threat through my door. I got, Oh wow. Um, this was when Musa stepped in. Actually, I went searching and I found a thread about me on uh, either four channel, eight channel, one of those sites where the thread was about me, but then it kind of descended into chatter and it was really, it was unclear whether a poster wanted to shoot me in the head or all Jewish people or me and all Jewish people. And so when I took it yeah. to the police and go, I feel really worried about this. I've got, you know, babies and shit. They were like, it's unclear <laughs> who this is. And part of me was like, God, all I wanted to do was just write. Like I just wanted to write books. And then I got to a point where I felt like I had to use my platform to try and bring more writers of color through because like that's what you do with your platform you share it because that's just how you know that's the like you know coming up with people like selena godden that's just how you know to be yeah and then and then you're like panicking about a death threat that people are like this isn't real they just want to shoot all jewish people in their head and you're like that is also a serious thing you know yeah Um, and it's horrible because then you like once you're seen as someone who speaks out about things people then are also watching you to kind of go you have not spoken up enough about this why have you not spoken up enough about this and so you're then like oh i've got to now speak up about everything but i'm not on twitter all the time like today like i've not really been on social media apart from that instagram live because i've been with my kid and when i've not been with my kid i've got fucking work to do you know yeah, and and you don't have a responsibility to cover all of these things either. It's it's. I think people need to realise that the first responsibility has to be your your mental health. Again, I don't want to just constantly talk about Musa because because this isn't Musa's episode. But you've mentioned <laughs> a quote from him him before where he said, "Why are the oppressed constantly called upon to talk about the oppression? Oppressors need to start holding their holding." each other accountable um yeah and it's exactly that i think there is that thing uh, i find a small bit of of array of humor in the fact that in your 20s you probably thought if i'm ever getting threats of being sh- shot in the head it's going to be because of a scathing rap i wrote rather than because of being a public intellectual <laughs> um it's, it's that, that kind of that that switch from potential rap beefs to yeah you're you're being put on this pedestal by both sides i guess a pedestal by one side because they want to hear what you have to say and a pedestal by the other side because they want an easier easier line of shot and that's an intimidating thing i did have a hilarious rap beef when i was a very mediocre rapper because i used to also write for a hip-hop site a uk hip-hop site and i reviewed you know, I don't think he'll mind me talking about this because he and I, we've talked about it a bunch of times over the yeah. years. So when Loki put out his first mixtape when he was 13, my review was sort of like, he he's 13, he's got potential, like, let's wait until he's amazing, you know? And it was sort of like, I don't necessarily, like, I don't necessarily still stand by it, but like, it was like a kind of a lacklustre, review and i just got 
eviscerated in like the UK hip hop community for ages, not by him, but by like loads of people who are just like, I'm going to come and like beat you up for like giving this guy, like telling this guy, like he has potential. He's like, he's amazing and all this other stuff. And I, you know, I always thought that, you know, that's going to be like the most anyone ever wants to, to hurt me is because yeah. I gave this amazing rapper i said he's going to be amazing when he's older you know and yeah. and he is like he still he still is amazing and we of ran course. into each other recently and uh when i say recently i, I mean obviously like a while ago now like over a year ago we, yeah. we both shared a stage at something and i was like you know i still think about that review and i still feel bad about it and he was like you know what <laughs> it was like 17 years ago man it's fine Re- uh, remind me when we f- finish recording and i'll tell you the story of why we had to have extra security a couple of dates on a on a tour in america because of a rapper that had been really offended by something and was he turned up at, at one show with his boys and we're there like oh shit i thought these american rap beefs were just a thing you read about oh this is real <laughs> but um I've, I've not spoken to the person so i'm not gonna tell the story here as i haven't cleared it up on a panel s- since but i'll tell you later um <laughs> Well, I mean, to 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 wrap up on on the good immigrant side of thing, despite all of that, you kind of gave that platform again by doing a version with U.S. writers, and was there yeah. a, a Dutch one as well? Or there's there's but you, you've kind of gone a few times right. Well, let's make this a a thing. And so, how was that kind of as a decision to go? Wow, this really is. Uh, feeling like a historical thing now the good immigrant is kind of a thing as much as it is a book in itself it's a concept now yeah so the dutch thing a bunch of people approached me and said that they wanted to do a dutch version of the book uh would they would i mind them using the title and i was like look you can't copyright titles so if you want to use it it's fine just like be clear it's not me because like i wouldn't be able to help you curate it because i can't speak or read dutch you know yeah and that seems to have done really well. Uh, yeah, so like a bunch of really interesting things has happened uh, around the the good immigrant. We we tried to get the the book sold in America, and American uh, publishers kept telling us we've got our own problems. Thank you. It's it's like a lot more specific here. Yeah. And so we were like, okay, well, we spoke to a couple of publishers and decided to do a, a book talking about America. And but this, but because the first one was kind of like me and people I knew and in that sort of classic DIY way of you and you and your mates kind of come together and do this thing and you don't know what it's going to become. And then it blows up. And then the second time around, we were like, let's take this seriously. So Shimen Suleiman, uh, who's, you know, one of my best friends and one of the contributors to the original book, she was living in America by this point. And so I asked her to co-edit it with me and we found some amazing writers doing really interesting things like we got Teju Cole writing about Black Panther and we had um yeah. Mona Chalabi do like an inf- infographic instead of an essay and like all this amazing stuff and the other thing that we did was you know loads of British writers of color like were coming up like approaching me after the success of the good immigrant and they were all just sort of going please be careful that we don't get pigeonholed as only ever wanting to write about race. And I was like, you know what, guys, you're right. That is a really important thing that could very easily happen because publishing likes to replicate. Yeah. Publishing li- like likes to see a trend and like try and replicate it. So I was like, That's... so we, we set up, um, we crowdfunded to, to put out four journals called The Good Journal, where we were basically like, 
here's a platform for writers of colour, do what you want. And we published like 61 writers writing. And like a lot of them have gone on to like have like their own books out and stuff. And the other thing was like, when you talk about things like diversity and inclusion in various industries, you know, obviously it's important to talk about race, but you know, in the UK, like it's really also really important to talk about class and it's really important to talk about yeah. disability and, and sex and gender and men like neurodivergence and like all of the, all of the things that marginalize people. And then what about them? And so uh, we got the Arts Council to give us some funding to set up a literary agency to help rec- represent writers from marginalised backgrounds called the Good Literary Agency. And so Musa is actually represented by us. Um, and um, yeah, so we represent writers who are like neurodivergent, writers who are working class, writers who are, you know, and like, and obviously the intersection between all of those things. Like, I'm just like the silent co-founder. Like, I take all the credit yeah. because like <laughs> my, my face is on it. Well, not I don't take all the credit, but like, you know, it it operates without me. Like I'm yeah. just helped helped to get it set up, and then I stepped away to kind of do a, to, to do my writing. But it's amazing that 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 is the legacy. Like my it started off as me wanting to cultivate like an ecology of British writers of color and and or writers from diverse backgrounds, and so being able to like actually do it from the ground up, it was yeah. was amazing. Yeah, like I when I was first starting out. I was in an anthology edited by Courtier Newland, who you know recently wrote, wrote *Lovers Rock* and right. um, Nee Parks, who just wrote *The The Geese* and runs Flipside Publishing, who's published some of everyone's favourite poets, and and Rajiv Balasubramaniam, who's an amazing novelist. They gave me my first start, and off the back of that, I met a writer called Nivin Govindan, um, and Musa and Inwa, and. And Polar Bear, I met Polar Bear and Inua at the same Glastonbury in 2006 and Selena Godden as well. And all of them just like took me under their wing in various ways and like gave me time and support and shoulder to cry on and all the rest of it. And like, I can't pay any of them back. Like they made my career, but I can pay it forward and just think like, I have this platform. It would just be really selfish of me to just keep it for myself like it's a big platform at this point in terms of literature not in terms of like other art forms but like in terms of literature i can share it with as many people as i can and that's been really really 100 percent though and again there should be no question over the size of the platform because in terms of literature is the key bit there because literature is one of the areas that is so restricted on basis of class and race and has been for yeah. for uh, since the dawn of time. So it's so important to have p- platforms like that. And it's really interesting. Like uh, Riz Ahmed has talked about this numerous times, the kind of idea that, you know, I do want to talk about race, but I also want to be allowed to talk about other things. I don't yeah. w- w- want it to be. And similarly, when you're being asked on all these panels and, and, and and TV shows or whatever. And it's like, does it always have to be about the fact of, w- of what my heritage is as such? Or can we yeah. talk about all the other things I'm educated on, passionate about, knowledgeable of? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I think like, you know, I would love nothing more than to write a flat share sitcom. But then if, if like, it would still be a flat share sitcom through the lens of a South Asian male from London. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So like, yeah. there is still a specificity that's going to give you that unique thing that we love. Cause like, I don't think we necessarily love, you know, when we talk about stuff being universal, like the stuff that 
the specific allows the universal to shine in stories. But then I think my big problem basically is we're supposed to be in the imagination business, right? And in the imagination business, the default is always like the middle-class white male. And you, it kind of behind it is this like bubbling group of like angry people on the internet who want that story centered and it's very restrictive. Like when I'm in the imagination business and I think, God, we're in a, we live in a world where people are willing to suspend their disbelief for the thought that there are a bunch of ghosts that need busting. But in 2015, they were unable to suspend their disbelief for the thought that four women can bust ghosts. And they took yeah. all of their rate, that simming, simmering rage just spilled out. And Leslie Jones, the black member of cast, took all like 90% of the flack for for that 90% of the abuse. She was chased offline. Like I wasn't allowed to say this in the book. I had to like soften it after a legal read, but like she, like that is the reason why Milo Yiannopoulos is no longer, it was taken off Twitter was because of that. Yeah. And you know, if we can't even accept lady, I'm saying this in air quotes now, lady Ghostbusters or a black James Bond, you know, in all or, of the or, 28 or films... In, or in 2020, if we can't accept the idea of black people having Christmas dinner. That was... that yeah, was that, that blew up... Like, it's mind-blowing that this is so... Still so current and relevant, that there was such anger at that. And the irony being that Sainsbury's, or whoever it was, had shot four adverts that were all coming out, and it just happened that the first one was a black family. There was a white family, there was all this. Yet, because that, that was the first one... <gasps> This doesn't yeah, represent me. Fuck off. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's nuts. And and you know, this is part of why I wrote Brown Baby, because I really wanted to talk about the specificity of raising my kids. Like my daughters, they're both mixed race. They're half Indian, half well no, I don't they're not half of anything. They're wholly Indian and they're wholly English, right? Yeah. And when my eldest child was in nursery when she was like two or something, uh I went to pick her up. And she she was really upset and I was talking to the nursery person and they said there was uh, the doll that she wanted to play with, she couldn't play with. And I was like, oh, well, which doll was it? Basically, like to, the long short of it was there was like five dolls available in this in this room and there was one brown doll and the rest were white dolls and she didn't want to play with the brown doll. And I really understand why. And... As we were walking home, I was trying to talk to her about it and she kept saying, the brown doll's dirty. The brown doll's dirty. And I said, what do you mean it's dirty? I'm sure they clean it every day. And she she said, no, no, because it's brown, it looks dirty. And it broke my heart that that was the association she had with it. And then I remembered that like a weird thing just started to happen after that. She has this other doll at home um, who is brown and she wouldn't play with it and she wouldn't play with her other like her baby Annabelle white doll, but the baby Annabelle white doll would just like collect dust on the floor somewhere. Whereas I would find the brown doll shoved into random places. Like she was actively trying to hide her and it really bothered me. And I couldn't really understand what that was. And to kind of link this to like what I'm saying about like all of this stuff around representation is like, it starts so early, like our associations with things. If we like, if we watch cartoons and read picture books and um, play computer games and like the brown and black characters don't have names or they're never the main character or they're always the best friend, but never 
like front and center or they just don't exist then we never see them like we grow up not never seeing them as the main character in anything and that sends a message and like if you are if you are a brown child reading that you never see yourself as the main character in any any anything you always see yourself as a side character and if you're a white child you never see brown people as normal or as taking the lead and like all this stuff pervades in our culture and really like I think alarming and fascinating ways and this is kind of why I wrote the book because like when Jodie Whittaker was cast as Doctor Who and Jodie Whittaker is hilarious and like one of the most like charming screen presences I've ever seen I'm not even a Doctor Who fan right yeah but when she was cast as Doctor Who one of the previous doctors was quoted as saying it's just a real shame that boys are going to lose one one more role model and I thought that was such a bonkers idea because a boys have a lot of role models <laughs> like, yeah look at the world but also b are we supposing that it's that binary that boys only have male role models and girls only have female role models yeah. how do, how do how far do we then extend it like do white people only have white role models and black people only have black role models and so on and so forth like that doesn't work for me like the two biggest forces in my life growing up were Michael Jordan and Peter Parker, you know, like without yeah. them, I would have no male role models. Yeah. And I didn't have any like brown role models. Like, so it just, it just blew my mind. And so when you start to see how early all of this stuff starts, when it's in picture books, when it's in like the cartoons that my kids are watching on TV, you start to think something is wrong here. This is why people don't treat people like human beings like it starts early and i and and i don't think it's as facile as going but it's just books it's just tv like we're absorbing all of this stuff from a really early age 100 percent. and i i think you're completely right is that these areas of representation aren't necessarily for the people that they're representing or not exclusively i've i've told this before but the moment that Black Panther really clicked with me was in the cinema at the end credits. Because I'd thought it annoys me a little bit that people like Marvel are cashing in a little bit on on things like, here's our black film and we're up for equality. Here's our female superhero. It's all, it's all equality. And really it's like, these things are important, but they shouldn't be a market employee. And I thought the black children that I went to school with, again, there wasn't, many because I just live in a small town in Essex, but there's been black heroes like Nelson Mandela and, and, and Malcolm X and people, people like this. So I questioned, I was excited for Black Panther, but I questioned if it's as culturally important as, as people were implying. And then what I saw in the cinema in this quite white area I've grown up was young white kids on their feet, dancing to, to the African music at the end of Black Panther. And, it occurred to me that, number one, obviously it's important, again, as Riz Ahmed has said, that these children can now open an action figure that looks like them, that represents them, that matches their skin, but it's equally as important that everyone else can, that, that mm. everyone of, it, of, it, of every race. And I think the key part, things like The Good Immigrant isn't only for immigrants to read, and equally Brown Baby Anyone who's listened to this who happens to not be Asian, it's okay. It's for you as well. Because <laughs> yeah. the universe, the, the, the key to universality for me is the truths and the confessions. And you're, you're very open in this about 
a lot of things that you've been through, a lot of things that have been hard for you or things you've s- suffered with that are completely unrelated to race or, or, or immigration or anything else. And that's where we are all brought together. So how was that to find those truths, I guess, to find what to, 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 to share? Having previously written fiction and then the good immigrant has suddenly thrown you into into nonfiction, yeah. but in a tricky way because it's you wrote an amazing essay in the, the Good Immigrant, but you know there oh, was tons you. of other people to, to 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 carry things along as well, and all of a sudden now it's like now it's all you. Now we want to hear everything about you. I oh, know it's terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying, <laughs> but like yeah. So that essay in the Good Immigrant was like that first experimentation with this voice where I am addressing the reader but I'm addressing them like I'm addressing my daughter. This is a conversation I'm having with my daughter. And um, it's basically a series of conversations that she and I have had, that they and I have had over like the first five years of that I've been a parent. And when I was approached to write it, like I felt bleak in like 2019 when I was sort of commissioned to write it really bleak. And like, this is before (laughs) the shit show of 2020. Mm. And I was thinking a lot about what I was going to write how you even write a memoir about parenthood because like my parent my parenting journey isn't particularly out of the ordinary like nothing drastic or life like like nothing was out of the ordinary but like it's my job as a writer it's our job as artists to find small moments of grace in the mundanity and like find the beauty in in the ordinary and I, I just thought you know what if I'm going to have a conversation with my daughters I need to I need to talk them through all of the stuff that keeps me up at night because the thing that I want to drive them to, I want my kids to be joyful. I want them to be raised with joy and ambition and wonder and curiosity and all the rest of it. But how do I raise them with joy when the world's fucked and I'm angry about it? Yeah. And so, and that, that was like the central thing about the book. And so I was literally like, what keeps me up at night? Well, racism keeps me up at night. Um, You know, I'm, I'm a father of daughters who you know, always thought I was like, always believed I was a feminist, but how do, how do I activate that into reality instead of just sort of abstractly retweeting a bunch of articles and like, yeah. And all the rest of it. How do I talk to my kids about fucking climate change? Like we've fucked the world. Here you go (laughs) guys. See you later. I'm dead now. Um, As a, as a parent, you, you want your kids to be happy and positive. But again, there is there is also as a grown up, you know all the reasons that, that they shouldn't be happy and positive. So it's that <laughs> weird kind of balance of no, it's all fine. And then again, particularly if you've got children who will question things, that's going to yeah. be particularly tough to go. Yeah, okay, yeah, but still, in spite of that, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, and and the and the, then the big part of it was my. So like I became a published author in 2010. I wrote this book, Coconut Limited, which is all about my my years as a shit rapper. Yeah. And the week before my novel came out, my mum very suddenly died, and it just it destroyed my life. And I I chose not to grieve for her. I chose to promote my book because I thought it would be a good distraction. And then what I ended up doing was pushing the grief down and down and down. And it just sort of, it bubbled up again when I had my kid, because suddenly there was an absence there. Like, how do I talk to my mum about all of this stuff where, you know, she's not here. And so a large part of the book is about grieving for my mum and like yeah. working out how, like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if like, 
what your relationship is like with your parents, but my relationship with my mum was one of absolute love that was just steeped in fucking arguments all the time. Like she showed her love through being really harsh with me. And in a way that the journey of the book is like realizing that she actually prepared me pretty well for being a parent. I just sort of miss her physical presence, but like she did a good job by, (laughs) by being really harsh. And some parents show love. Like, I don't want to sort of make assumptions about anyone's parents, but some parents do show love through, pushing you and pushing you and pushing you and that's what my relationship with my mum was like yeah well can we talk about grief a little bit and your journey or what you've learned on your journey with it I guess because we're at a really weird time in the world in this pandemic where in in the UK in particular so many people are dying even higher numbers in the Asian communities and the usual processes of griefing aren't available i've attended a funeral on a webcam and yeah, it's, it's the weirdest weird, thing it? and the my normal new year's eve is i'll take a walk or s- a sit at some point and reflect on the year and one of the reflections was that death in the family that doesn't feel real because i've not seen anyone if that makes sense so you I, i've not got to feel her missing if you know what i mean so i think it's i, I think it's a really weird time for, for for grief and I think a lot of people are going to need a lot of help when we come out the other end of this because we've again particularly in in, in the Asian community as well where the grieving process can be so specific and so big and, and and extreme to not have those moments I think it might hit people further yeah. along than they expected and as someone who f- f- faced grief and t- turned away from it <laughs> and focused on book promotion and work and then has had to face it at a later date i guess what's your thoughts and experience on that yeah god yeah first of all i'm really sorry for your loss man it's it's so hard and i and i think um you know i i had a couple of people in my extended family pass away and one of the things that i noticed i mean it wasn't they weren't anyone like really close to me but you know people who i kind of grew up with and they were always there throughout my life yeah. and the thing that i noticed the thing that i kind of i found really hard was there was just no way of people experiencing the physicality of death to feel that physical absence to kind of have the catharsis of seeing coffin or you know seeing seeing the body if it's an open casket or just having that moment to kind of say goodbye and then being around everyone else who's having that moment as well exactly yeah yeah exactly and then share that moment together it it's so hard for people like you don't you don't experience the community that does form around that bereavement and I did have that community at the time my mum died and I was really lucky for that and I think that kind of bolstered me in a way but like you're right. I think there's so many people holding on to holding on to the fact that people probably don't really feel gone, really, because you. I just, you know, I haven't seen my dad for like yeah. nearly a year and a half now. Yeah. Um, and in the same way as I haven't seen my dad, like I haven't seen my uncle who passed away in probably the same amount of time. Yeah. Like they're both just an absence, and you know, it's it's good. It is so hard. Um, so the thing that I'm that, like I'm trying to draw a parallel in the book is 
when you become a parent, like there's something, something happens to time and like time just becomes really flat where like my kid is five and she's five hours and she's five months and she's like two (laughs) years all at the same time. Every time I look at her, I can like look at her and I can, I can see what she's going to look like when she's 15. And in that same way, my mum has been dead for 10 years, over 10 years now, over 10 years and a day and an hour and 14 months all at the same time. And that like that flatness of time is something that I wanted to write about because grief isn't linear and like parenting isn't linear and like also the memoir isn't linear but like grief isn't linear like it hits you at weird times when I was writing the book there was one chapter that um I needed to write which was basically about the last time I spoke to my mum which was an argument (laughs) classic standard yeah and it was an unresolved argument because we both walked away from that argument pissed off with each other and then she was gone you know, and I didn't get a chance to resolve it. And so that's the moment of time that we're frozen in, you know, that's where, that's where our relationship got frozen. And I just, I couldn't write it because to, to write it would be to resolve it and to resolve it would be to say goodbye. And I'd been holding on to it like, you know, like a, you know, like a peach stone in like causing problems in my stomach lining for so long that it was time to get rid of it. And it was really painful to write. I ended up actually, writing it like I was in Berlin teaching for like two summers ago, like summer of 2019. And that's when I like away from home, away from the home space, away from my partner and my kids, away from my family. That's where I was able to write it because I just needed to confront it. I needed to like conjure my mum. I needed to like, I needed her to die again. I needed to feel the physicality of her dying. And that's, it was really, it was really painful to write But then, you know, as we were kind of talking about at the top, like, I don't, like, I feel like my soul is on that page. And I just hope that by by the very fact of me putting that, my soul on the page and by me bleeding on the page, like, like, you're sort of communing with the cosmos and communing with like other people who will read it and through my specificity, read their own specificity. And like, what you were saying earlier about just that communication can just sort of lead to an openness that you know yeah. like without sounding real hippie about it like it'll make it makes the world a better place like putting your vulnerability on the page and like being open about it like that's the stuff for me that's the stuff that puts me at the desk yeah i mean how did you decide what to put in and what not to put in then because i think we're at a weird space in time where that openness and that vulnerability is suddenly kind of sexy it's kind of in, it's, it's, it's kind of the thing. And I struggled with that a little bit with my, my lyrics because very early on I wrote some really personal and open stuff and people fucking loved it, man. So it's like, well, how open and personal can I get next? Because it becomes this addictive thing. And I think it's why now I'm so protective over the privacy of, of certain areas in my life. The fact that, no, that's mine, that's not... I don't have mm. to live purely for the page as such, which again, I think was my outlook at what, at one point I've joked about it, but there was numerous times. Oh, one in particular where I was fucking heartbroken after a relationship ended tears really damaged. And just before I fell asleep, I thought 
going to make a good song though. And and again, it was like this <laughs> this ugly thing of it was just there. It was like this is horrible pain, but oh, this is going to be a fucking hit. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess. How did you find that? I again, I, I feel like I should reveal my ma- magic trick that I know you mentioned on the on the Instagram live that there were certain things that you t- decided to take out in the end and not put in. How how was that process? I guess because again, you don't have a responsibility to tell everyone everything there's there's you you have to look after yourself and your family and your mind as a priority you you know so how did you find that balance yeah so i think that first draft i put everything on the page yeah just absolutely everything and it was just a it was just a question of working out what was thematically relevant you know the central thesis of the book is how do i raise my kids to be joyful in a dark bleak world that i'm angry at yeah then I didn't, you know, I didn't need to settle any scores. I didn't need to talk about pain that wasn't related to that central thesis. I didn't need to throw in anecdotes that sort of took us off on on a road. So actually, like, you read the book and you, and this is the other thing, like, I also have in the back of my head, some white supremacist asshole found your home address on the internet and send you, sent you some really, really horrible shit. Yeah. And so, like, it's actually a very open but it's very emotionally open but like it's very detail scarce like yeah my partner and i took the decision early on that she didn't want to be in it she didn't want me to write about her and that's fine so i've written a parenting book where the mother of the children is largely absent and that's that's her agency that's what she wants that's and that kind of freed me up to realize that like memoir is quite imprecise because i you know, I don't remember conversations I had three days ago, three hours ago, let alone like yeah. Um, yeah. things that I was thinking about 20 years ago. But I could, I, what I'm doing is I'm retaining the truth on the page. And because the truth is there, the emotional truth, yeah. the specificity of how it happened largely becomes irrelevant in a way, as long as you're kind of summing up like the feeling that you're trying to convey. You know, I, when, when I used to listen to like um, Kay's early poems, they were so good at making you feel like you were in the moment that they were having, but actually it was probably so far away from how it actually went down. But like you're able to, once you're able to extract the truth from something, like if you're writing fiction, you can take it absolutely anywhere you want. So like, but with memoir, uh, the thing that I needed to do was just decide what actual events go into the book what are the actual events that I'm going to talk about? And once I've decided them, how do I then link them back to the thing that I want to tell people about? Yeah. I love that. Well, I mean, I've taken up over an hour of your time already, so I'll start to wrap things up, but I want to touch upon the podcast because the podcast is also called Brown Baby. And the podcast I feel is Brown Baby as the good immigrant. Um, and I'll explain that because it's 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 going again as on the topic of how do we raise our kids with joy and wonder in uncertain and increasingly bleak times. But you're giving the, that kind of basis of topic conversation t- to your guest, so it's 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 essentially bringing in these audio essays in conversation of other people's experiences of that, and I think that works perfectly. It's, it it. it it's so lovely and it must be nice for you to have i guess gone through the process of of analyzing what you think on all of this and what, and again i want to just quickly highlight as well if we didn't m- make it clear 
the beauty of Brown Baby is that you have written it to your children or to yeah. your daughter. So it can tackle big subjects, but not feel angry and aggressive or whatever else, because you're telling it to a child. And that's, mm. I think, particularly for a lot of the, the fucking sensitive white people out there, that, that's kind of helpful for them. It's, it's, nice, it's a good way for, for, <laughs> yeah. for, for them to, to learn and not be too panicked or, or nervous. Um, but yeah, what was the idea on the podcast run and how's it been so far talking to people on that on that same subject i guess a parenting podcast where you're talking about all the joy and 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 positivity in spite of the world well the thing is pip when you are when you listen to a lot of brilliant podcasts where like sad softly spoken vulnerable men talk about their feelings with other people (laughs) um, and they use their art to kind of create conversations and expand the central thesis of what they're trying to do then you kind of you get inspired by that like I you know I've as I was saying to you off mic like I've been listening to this podcast since you first dropped it and like I loved how in the early days it was kind of an expanded universe for the distraction pieces like thing you know yeah and and like as a as a parent I am so thankful to the many conversations I've had with other parents about the reality of it because no one really talks to you honestly about parenting until you actually have kids right um <laughs> it's, and it's, because- it's an ongoing jo- a joke i have in 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 a group message i'm on is a, 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 one of our mates when he was thinking of having a kid having a kid everyone was like mate it will change you it's the best thing in the world as soon as he'd had the kid they were like mate you're fucked now um, this, like, it was like, and he was like, mate, everyone was telling me to have one. And now you're all saying, yeah, oh no, you're never going to sleep. Oh, that's a nightmare. Oh, this is a mess. It's like, where's, why was this a secret? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, it was a series of conversations and because the book is a series of conversations, I just thought, you know what, why don't I just have a bunch of honest conversations with people? Yeah. Like often I'm making work that, I would have needed at a particular time in my life. And and I often like to think of myself or myself at a particular point as the first customer of stuff that I do. So, or the first reader. So like the book was the book that I would have loved to have read when I found out that my wife was pregnant and the podcast is the podcast I would have loved to have listened to between 1am and 3am when I did the night shift and I had my kid and I was like, I've got to go to work in five hours. Why won't she fucking sleep? And I would take her for little walks around Bristol where I live. And so like, yeah, they're both kind of the stuff that I needed in the hope that there'll be other people who have that same need. And so, yeah, like got loads of really great guests, like loads of really great writers. So we like had Jay Sean on, who's obviously like a massive pop star who I'm working with on this thing that i'll tell you about off 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 mic and mate that blew me away because confession time i somehow had no idea jay sean was even english um i i knew him from the the the, the young money from from that kind of yeah that that world and it always assumed like having just it's not like like i wasn't an expert on the guy's career or anything but when he popped up i'd always assumed he was this american um yeah a, a, a singer and that that podcast was amazing yeah yeah he probably grew up two streets away from asim like they're both yeah. from hounslow amazing um, yeah yeah so like, uh, tomorrow i'm chatting to nadia hussein who's obviously like the nicest person in the world um awesome yeah like 
it's yeah it's it's really it's it's a great opportunity to kind of give people an insight into two people who are like prepared to be vulnerable with each other talking about the realities of being a parent because like I never had that I just had like oh crap it's 2am my kids being weird and you end up on these weird sites or like yeah chat site like or like thread sites like Mumsnet, which is like was like heaps and heaps heaps of advice that were very specific to whoever was posting's child and like that's not helpful i yeah, don't like yeah, if it were yeah. for your child i don't know who you are <laughs> yeah, yeah. i know nothing about your life <laughs> yeah um yeah i love it so i mean i want to r- wrap things up by asking how much music influences your your work as a writer because because lines will come up here and there or quotes or references will come up here and there. And again, I love listening on the podcast or on interviews in general, you'll always get excited to go off on a a slight music tangent because it's there. It's like the passion's there. So yeah, how does that influence and inform you as a writer, I guess? Oh yeah, completely. I've had to stop listening to rap while I write because you end up just like weird MF doom deep cut references end up in your, in your writing and, and like it excites you, but then part of you is like the average reader is not going to get what you're talking about. Yeah. But the, yeah. the book is, the book is inspired by a song um, that my wife had like not a couple of months after she found out she was pregnant uh, by that Nina Simone did this cover version of this song called Brown Baby. Yes. When I tracked down um, the original version by Oscar Brown Jr. And it was like a lullaby that he'd written for his kid. It was like one of the first songs that he'd ever written. It was really beautiful. It was just a really beautiful song about welcoming a kid into the world. But like, yeah, like music is just everywhere in like my life in in the writing you know, I've written two books where the main character is an MC. Like, I think music and stand-up are pretty much my two big obsessions. So, yeah. like, they just find their way into my work without me realising. And also, what I what I like to do when I start a new book is I like to make a playlist of all of the songs yeah. that would be relevant to either the characters if it's a fiction book or, or you know, or thematically yeah. kind of speak to Love what it. I'm doing with with the nonfiction stuff. And that's like my little private thing. And I just listen to it again and again and again. So like currently I'm, I've got a playlist and it's just called Sanjay and Gita. Nothing to do with like the thing that I'm going to be writing, but that's, I'm listening to that playlist obsessively when I'm sort of walking around, listen, like thinking about what this next novel is going to be. And yeah. somewhere like the, the sort of the tone and like, the lyrics and you know the feel of those songs because they're all quite slow sad songs like it would just something would just emerge out of it i I just feel like it puts me in the zone for it yeah i'm a big i'm a big music guy i love that are you you big on on that as well on because i like when i'm writing whether it whatever it be really a lot of the work will happen before i sit down to write i'm big on walking around i suffer from insomnia as well so i'll often mm. uh, one of the, the tricks i got i think from danny wallace was that when i'm writing uh, for example working on a script i'll always i'll finish early i'll stop before i need to, to stop as such so that when i've got insomnia that night i'm thinking about what i'm writing the next day and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger rather than i get right to the end of the bit the bit of the story i know 
and then I have to start the next day and go, yeah. I've no idea what happens now. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You, it, does that work for you with music playlists as well, that a lot of it is percolating, a lot of it is notes on your phone or whatever else, and then when you actually exactly. s- sit down, you've got all those tools to jump into rather than blank page, write a novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to. Yeah, I have. It has to. I have to sit and sit with it for a long, long time. The best way to describe it is when you first watch the Karate Kid, and yeah. Daniel is doing wax on, wax off. He's you know, up, painting up and painting down, and you feel his frustration. You're just like, Mister Miyagi, just teach him how to fucking kick. You know, you feel yeah. it. But then, like <laughs> yeah. that bit where he shows him all of the stuff that he's learned. That's, that's the point in which I'm sitting down to write. I have to have done yeah. all of the other stuff because I, I mean, you know, this when like, it'd be so easy as writers and as artists, as poets and as novelists to just like sit in our little corners, never talk to anyone and just, and write. But then what we'd be writing would not be out in the world. Like yeah. my work needs to be of the world and that's what's been so yeah. weird about covid times like i'm not in the world so i'm not meeting people and going oh yeah the way that guy holds his fork is kind of interesting yeah or um oh that thing that that, that she said that's that's really fascinating I, I you know i'll make a note of it on my phone and yeah. you know being in the world that's the stuff that like then gets gets filtered into the work like if i'm not being in the world i'm a terrible writer i'll just yeah. be writing about being a writer and no one really wants to read that but the other problem and weird, surprising thing of COVID times, it, you and Jay Shaw nailed on on Brown Baby was the fact that writing and creation, part of it is space. So it's really em- em- embarrassing when there's suddenly people observing y- your process. And part of your process might be to be watching things on YouTube or yeah. to be doing this or doing that. And it doesn't seem I like your work. And I, in the first half of, of the lockdown, when I was spending a, a, a lot of shared time with my partner, it was a real struggle on, on the writing front because if I'm just playing on my PlayStation, in her mind, oh, you're not working now. We can do <laughs> stuff. I was like, no, I am working because I've, I've not got to where I need to be and I need to either distract my mind or let it percolate or do this or that, but I need yeah. to be good to go and then come back to it. And it's, it's, a, it's an impossible one to get across to anyone because, again, to the trained or untrained eye, you're clearly not working, but you yeah. kind of it's an essential part of your working. So how's that been? <laughs> yeah, Zadie Smith wrote a brilliant essay uh, in, in a book called Intimations, which she wrote like in the early part of the first lockdown. And yeah. she, she said, it's, it's an essay called Something, Something to Do, where she equates writing with making banana bread. And she's like, they're both just something to do. But she was saying that <laughs> her biggest nightmare at the moment is her partner and children discovering how she spends her days. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. Because like, I'll be writing and then I'll go, oh yeah, Master, like there was that Master A song, A Long Hot Summer. And then I'll go and look at the, find the cover on Google and I'll look at it for a few seconds and I'm like, and then my mind will be like, I wonder if there was ever a music video for good old love. I really like that song. So I'll go and look it up on YouTube and then I'll watch it. And then like nothing might occur, like nothing, but it's all, it's all fed into the machine. Like something Mm. is processing and you sort of don't know what, and you don't know how it's going to come out and where, but it is work. Like thinking is work. We're in the imagination business, Pip. Like we have to make, we've got a, make lady ghostbusters and black james bonds and like they don't just yeah. happen by, <laughs> by sitting down and writing all the time it's what worries me about 
the future of the music industry. And again, this is a weird kind of area for us to be winding up on. And people hate hearing about it because in reality, getting all the music in the world essentially for free is really good as as a consumer to have to pay whatever it costs on Spotify. But it means artists aren't getting that money. And it means artists for a far longer time have to have another job to pay the bills. And again, I understand that. That's a struggle. Everyone has to go through it. But it means that they don't have that time to to ponder and to create. And maybe that's the time that makes them them create something amazing. Um, I worked in retail to fund my first album for ages, but I didn't release it until I'd saved up enough to take a year off so that I could focus on it. And again, that's yeah. weird. I'm, I'm over plan on things, things like that. But it meant I spent three or four years s- s- saving in my job at, in a record store so that I could go, right, here's the period that I'm going to try this. And I think so many bands and artists aren't going to get that anymore because we've reduced the value of everything from music to TV and film. We want everything for free. And therefore it's like, well, how does that happen? You know? Yeah, and I, I remember seeing an interview with uh, the guy who runs Spotify and he was like, musicians need to be releasing something every six weeks or what's the point? And, and you just thought, and I just thought like, you're turning art into content. Like yeah. people refer to writing as content and it's not content. Content is ephemeral. Like some of the stuff in Brown Baby started life in essays that like I wrote in half an hour, put on the internet, like, you know, published wherever. But like... I get to sit with them and turn them into like something that's not ephemeral or something that's not like viral for a day. And then no one ever talks about it ever again. Yeah. And and actually like the big joy of turning 40 in lockdown was uh, finally investing in a proper record player and buying albums again and trying to learn the song names and spending time looking at like the liner notes and yeah, learning who plays the bassoon on that and like um who have they thanked and, and remembering what it was like to like scan like the inlay cards and stuff and because mostly because like every monday morning i listen to my discover weekly on spotify trying trying to like discover new stuff yeah but it just goes like if you listen to it and you don't stop and take note of it it just goes yeah and you never know who it was by you never know you never knew um what it was called you didn't really engage with what it was about and like like music's not just ephemera it's not just like something that just fritters away into the cosmos like songs have changed my life songs have influenced some of my my greatest work and i'm sort of doing those musicians a, a disservice and an injustice by like not treating it like an object of art in the same way that like I want my my books to be treated yeah I completely agree and I think there's also something in the the kind of idea that we all all have certain albums that we we loved as a kid and now as grown-ups we go oh man that was awful I think part of that is our taste developing but I think part of it is when you grow up as a poor kid it's got to be awesome that's yeah. the only album I can have this month. It's got. I've got to love this album. There's no. There's no two ways about it. I can't play it and go. Oh no, that's shit. I'll forget about it. I've paid for it. I can only afford a one album at, at this month. I've got a. I've got to 
give it the time and find what I wasn't seeing in it the first time or the song that I ignored that has actually got a lot more to it than I may have thought. And I think that's, that's gone now. Anyway, we'll wrap things up now and then we'll have a quick chat about all the things that we couldn't talk about on record. Um, (laughs) Yes, please. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been, as I said, it's been long overdue. Um, I've followed you for a long while and we've had a lot of, of mutual friends. When, the good immigrant was first coming about it was one of the most confusing months or so for me because i kept getting so confused as to who had a new book coming out because as ever with posts i hadn't really read the post so i'd see a you post about it and go oh nikesh has got a new a new book and then i'll see moose post about it and go i'm sure i saw someone else post oh no it must have been moose and moose has got a new book coming out and then in you will post about it and go was this in your book or is this something <laughs> took me ages like to read yet. it and go oh it's everyone's book that's that's wonderful yeah. it's like that yeah dante's peak and volcano came out this, <laughs> at the same time yeah, you're like yeah why are there exactly so many books about immigrants at the moment? it sounds really <laughs> similar to another book i've seen posters about but yeah it makes yeah. sense but yeah thank you very much man um no brown baby when this comes out is out now um the book and the no- uh, and the podcast continues to come out is it weekly yeah yeah for a bit for a while well thank you very much man it's been a it's been a damn pleasure yeah it's been great thanks babe you've been listening to scroobius pips distraction pieces there we go that was nikesh man that flew by for me honestly it felt like Again, it felt like catching up with an old friend. I think because we've got so many mutual friends, I think we knew we would hit it off because <laughs> we wouldn't be in so many of the same circles if we were not compatible. So, yeah, that was a lovely chat to have. Um, go and buy Brown Baby and then also listen to the accompanying podcasts because they're fantastic. Um, I'll be back next week. I'll tell you now, actually, with the amazing Jane Horrocks. I'm a huge fan of. You will have heard from a sponsor reader. In fact, this podcast came because of a sponsor reader I did a few weeks back about a show that, she, that, that that she's got coming out soon. And in the sponsor reader, I talk about how much of a fan I am of her. And John at Acast, John Harris, reached out and said, you know she's got a podcast at Acast, right? I did not know that. So I listened to her podcast. And um, they set up a little conversation. So that's all next week. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in, guys. I will be back next... I've said I'll be back next week, so I'll just stop talking. Stay safe, stay sane, and stay sexy. Ta-ta.